Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more podcasting fun this week. And I bring to you this week one of the very first people I've ever had on my channel in any way who can speak credibly about Islam. <laughs> and uh, has actually quite a story to tell here, which is why uh, we are doing this show. This is Zara Kay. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being on. Um, now, you were born in Tanzania, in Africa. That is correct. East Africa, the Horn of, just under the Horn of Africa. Right. Um, yes, I was born and raised in Tanzania. I lived there about 16 years and then moved to Malaysia for a couple of years and then Australia for about a decade or right. longer and then the UK and now back in Australia. Okay. All right. Cool. And in that time, especially I think in this last year with COVID, you had a bit of an ordeal. You had an experience happen where you went back to Tanzania. Great. Yeah. So let's go ahead and kind of let everybody know. First off, um, okay, so you're born and raised in Tanzania. We know that much about you. Now tell us the rest about you. Who are you and how did you end up back there Perfect. this last year? And Proceed yeah. to tell us what happened. Yeah, I guess I guess just me going back there will touch on a lot of different points. So my family lives in Tanzania. Most of them live in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. um, I was the first one who moved to get a degree. My sister had moved other places in Malaysia and Pakistan. Um, but I think I will... I visited Tanzania. It initially was meant to be three weeks because I had a family emergency. So mid-pandemic, my brother gives me a call and I'm like, fine, I'm booking my flight and I'm going to come back. Um, and then I'll leave in a month. And what happened, what initially was meant to be a month ended up being six months, but voluntarily four months um, because I could work from home. And now I was brought up and raised as a Muslim and I would say formally I left and publicly left in 2017-2018 but religion is such a leaving religion is such an interesting and difficult process that you don't really sometimes know when the exact moment was that you left um, or started doubting um, but I think in my head I think I was 14 when I was already like paving my own path. So starting to apply for colleges and whatnot, where I was like, why do I need to pray? And I was already protesting in my own little ways while being in a Muslim home. And I used to wear the hijab. I started at the age of eight, almost turning nine. And, and my family are quite, I would say, relatively conservative. So in a way like all of us wear hijab it's a bit relaxed now but previously it was like the hijab and then the black veil as well not the face covering my mom was quite against it i remember i i had a small phase when i was like oh, i really want to wear it because i think like it's so religious and i want to be religious um but i was like 12. um and there were times where i didn't want to wear the hijab and i wish i had that option or the choice of no, one day maybe I'll pick it, one day I won't. And having the autonomy to do that 
but it was so it was so ingrained within the community and you know all I knew is that when I grow up I have to wear this eventually and everybody at school was wearing it so I studied it in an Islamic academic school and you'd still have religious studies and if you weren't a Muslim you'd have a separate class for it was called moral studies so probably they were learning about different things but because by definition I was a Muslim I had to stay in class um okay. and now, in my clarify, school let's go ahead and clarify sorry. for everybody as well just so everybody has the right idea about your upbringing and the society you were raised in you clarified for me Tanzania is not is a secular country it's not an Islamic That's country correct. by officially uh at least on the books yeah yeah so Tanzania while being culturally and traditionally religious not Islamic as such um, I, I would say Christianity, but it's such a blend. Mm. Um, by definition, is a secular country. All of East Africa is, so Kenya and Uganda included. My mum is Kenyan. Um, and, you know, this idea of Sharia law and Sharia court, I didn't actually know about it when I was a child. I only knew that Sharia law is like Islamic law and it's the best law that governs everyone and it's the right and just law as I was studying because I went to Islamic school on Saturday like on Saturdays we had like religious schooling until I was like 16 or 15 yeah and I obviously a lot of people with Sharia law have this idea of what it means and there's no one set value there's no one set guidebook on what Sharia law is because Islam like Christianity is quite widespread so it would be you know you know, different sects having different um, interpretations of what Sharia law would mean. And right. even within a sect, different people would have different ideas of what it would mean. So right. in a secular country, you would live, I guess, I guess in a secular country like Tanzania, you would live according to your community standards. So if you were to get a divorce or anything, it would go through a Sharia court, which is that community court. And oh, okay. Oh, so it would just be handled right there locally. It wouldn't be a go to the government kind of matter. You can do it after unless you withdraw your case from the community. So I actually flew there for my brother's divorce and that's what we had to go through. And the first thing I did was take it out of the Islamic court. Interesting. Because I knew, because I knew the community hated me and I knew they would unfairly bully him. So I was like, well, we're not even going to go through that. We might as well just go through legal systems um, and make sure that you're treated fairly. Because a lot of times, despite my brother being a man, he he would be he would be judged biasly because of me. But you know, they they're usually they usually unfairly um, treat women. So men would get the child custody, and according to Sharia law, when the child turns seven um male or female the father has full custody ah, okay um, okay and and does this so if it's if, if this sort of thing let me make sure that i'm that i'm tracking with with what you're saying here then so in this community that you were raised in then the community values or the community decisions can take precedence for the members over what the civil law is saying or they might not even go to the civil law because yeah. it's been worked out at the community level already is that is that do i have that right yeah 
Okay. Yeah. And I that's kind of how it gets enforced. Yeah. The idea is that you want to keep it quite insular, especially if you have issues with the community members and whatnot. But obviously we have the civil law for many other different things with businesses and everything else. But if it's for like civil disputes, it would go through the community. Interesting. Okay. And this is the one that you, and so every community is going to have their own various interpretations or ideas about things, but they'll all be following basic practices and principles of Islam and, and Sharia and stuff like that. But there might be local variations or local disagreements or, or whatever. Yeah. So specifically okay. in my community in Tanzania, women aren't allowed to be members as part of the constitution. You can only apply if you are an adult male, so over 18. Interesting. And what does that um, limit their ability to do? It. And it's it's different. Um, it doesn't actually. Um, hmm. It doesn't because they still get involved in divorce cases where women are the other party. So it's quite it, it's quite contradictory according to their constitution because usually the cases needs to be between two members. But if the members are women, so if, if that other person is a woman, then they're not your members. But I think it's designed to be by default that women come as part and parcel of the male that registers. Mm -hmm. So a wife, mother, daughter, sister. Um, and it's funny how the board members are all men. So you'll see like 12 men um, and not a single. Women aren't even allowed to vote in that leadership board so it's only men who can vote and elect and stand up for the i guess the community board member position or trustee position okay. so let alone just women being members and not even allowed to vote on what decisions would be made for their areas they do have they do have they don't they're not in the board but they do have women who are volunteers who would like make some changes but yeah, it was in general quite discriminatory in nature. And I didn't know about all of this, not their constitution. I always thought I was raised in such a different community, especially when I left Islam, which was, uh, I'll, I'll get to it. But when I left Islam and I started Faithless Hijabi and I heard stories of girls being um abused by their families and communities and i'm like well this doesn't apply to me obviously i was living in the west and away from my family uh, but my family was never like violent or abusive towards me the question about killing me was never there even disowning me we had our differences and i think when i did my first podcast i said i don't talk to my family because i need to keep them safe not the other way around they don't need to so i i actually stepped back and i was like I need to do my own thing right now. And I feel like this is going to be a clash between your values and mine. And I don't want to destroy that relationship. So I need a few years away to discover myself, but then they ended up battling that to be in my life. And now we're in a good position where we've learned how to manage different differences. Mm. Um, but previously, um, while, you know, like while well, we had that emotional disconnect and manipulation and abuse, and it was hard for both sides to take um, the change in lifestyle for the for for me specifically, uh, they've now learned to accept that and embrace it even more so. But I always thought that I was, you know, I come from a progressive background or 
um, the community I'm from has no honor-based abuse or violence and you mm. know they don't they don't control women the way you would see a lot of girls talk about how they couldn't wear pants at home or mm. you know they had to they had to wear um, skirts or dresses and you know all those strict laws that didn't really apply to me um, even though I had always seen women in my community to wear hijab. It was until I was 16 when I left Tanzania that I first saw a woman who prayed, didn't wear the hijab, but she prayed, she wore it while she prayed. But, you know, she would walk outside with the hijab without the, without the covering. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a bit of a culture shock for me. Um, because I was like, you can be a Muslim and not wear a hijab. Like, and my mom always said you had to. And then the idea that the, you know, in school and everything was you'd go to hell if you didn't wear the hijab. Got it. So I didn't even know it was a choice. And I didn't even know that was considered as part of sinning. It was just, you have to pray. You have to do this. You have to fast and you have to wear the hijab. Right. Right. Well, you know, when you're raised with certain religious traditions and upbringing, then that's how it goes. Then you feel, well, this is normal. This is how it's supposed to be. I'm curious now, because you are in a unique position of having been born and raised in that situation and then traveled and, you know, pretty extensively through Western countries now, UK and Australia, and have had years of experience there. So how would you overall, other than, you know, you've described, you know, some some of your upbringing and how it seems that this is a rather progressive community compared to some of the other more strict, more conservative Islamic communities and rules and honor-based violence and things that we've heard of in other countries or other areas. So you seem to have had a little bit of a middle ground experience with this, or am I missing the boat somehow? How do we no. think about this? I, I think, I think, think, uh, no, no, you're absolutely on point with that. Um, It was for me because because I didn't see my community as a threat, I didn't feel the hesitance of going back to Tanzania. So that's, that's what I did. You know, my family needed me. I'm like, of course, it's no question. I'll come back. And then, and then when I was there for three weeks, I'm like, oh, it's not too bad. Like I, I am around my family and you always get those eyes because people know you in Tanzania. It's a tight knit community. So even if I, ha- I don't know them, people know my personal life or know more about me than I've ever known their name. Uh, not in a boastful way, but they're quite no so they you know every every time we go out we had the eyes but we were fine you know we just ignored it we're living our life we're all happy we're taking you know um photos and tanzania didn't have a lockdown they they were very covid they were in denial about covid um and that was a sentiment shared um across the country so when you live there you're like okay well no lockdown no masks and it doesn't work when one person wears it um it it's like you know, everything you touch or there was a, like no social distancing or sanitizing or people would wear masks, but not social distance because it's just very, um, not as organized. It would be a very hard cultural change to even have them social distance. Um, but so when I went there for three weeks, I was, I was, you know, I was like, oh, it's fine. You know, I'm going to stay here longer. I'm going to work from home. And then until I got arrested, which we'll get into in a bit, mm-hmm. um, I was quite shocked. I had a very 
negative perception of not only the justice system in Tanzania, which I knew was always corrupt, but the fact that, you know, they were, the community went through such lengths to try getting me arrested because they just didn't like me. Right. And then even more shocking when the Australian government wasn't being cooperative because I had informed them two months before my arrest. And I'm like, hey, I feel like there are these threats coming. What do I do? And they're like, report it to the police. And I'm like, that's not an advice you should give me if they're trying to plant me to be against the government. Right. And they're like, oh, well, if it, you know, they're like, oh, well, that's, we can't do anything. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. But then when it did actually happen, they were just like, I'll finish it under the table. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, it's not like, like it, what, the, the charges weren't as big as the idea behind the arrest was. Hmm. So all the charges were made up. None of them stuck. I didn't go to court for anything. They had to just entirely drop the case, but they were waiting for me to be like silent with the media because they were really scared of how much criticism was coming their way. And right, because you kind of blew it up. Yeah, I mean, when when so with the arrest, it wasn't even me who was summoned in. It was my brother. Mm-hmm. And Actually, let, I'll tell you what, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second because I'd like to fill out a little bit more of the backstory. And then let's hit that because we're going to get right to it, right? So, all, yeah, no, no, you, you're fine. I just, I'm, I'm kind of directing <laughs> a little bit here because there were some earlier beginnings to this in that you had left the country and gone off to pursue opportunity. And then um, let's, let's just hit this point of where you started making, you were out of country when you started making some critical remarks about the president of the country on social media, is that right? Yeah, so, well, in general, I left Tanzania yeah. at 16 and I did visit a few times. Yeah. Uh, the last visit before 2020 was in 2018, like so three and a, two and a half years ago. Yeah. And I hadn't been there for two and a half years, but um, that's when in 2018, I decided to be an activist because I just, um, yeah, I decided to be an activist and opened Faithless Hijabi. And I think um, it came as a personal offense to the community that right. I was talking about Islam. Right. And I a think that's the point. Of, to the community. And I'm like... Right. I'm sorry, we, we have a little bit of a delay in our communication. So pardon me for interrupting but, your narrative there. Oh, good. Um, you, uh, I, I also would like to clarify for the audience, you said, you know, the, the, you started as an activist now with Faithless Hijabi. So what, what, what wait a minute, what's Faithless Hijabi? What, what did you start and, and, and how, what is this about? Yeah. Okay. So just a personal, on a personal level, how I came to accepting my departure from Islam, it started off with a person from the community, and I guess this will fill up the backstory about the community as well, yeah. a person from the community by extension in Canada. So we have the community where, you know, same community in different parts of the world. They have one in the US, they have one in Canada, had gotten married to another man. So a man got married to another man. And, you know, the family, because it's legal in Canada, and the family were there to celebrate. And that's what really blew up where, not only did they humiliate that person by raiding their Instagram and shaming them 
privately on WhatsApp, they also coerced and forced the mother to drop out of the board because they're like, this is unethical. You should have never joined your son. You should have disowned him. You should have never been there and being happy and celebrate. And there were this, it, it, it was such a crucial moment for me because I was so surprised to see how much hatred they had. Um, maybe because when I was in Tanzania, I didn't know much about homosexuality until like I left overseas. It was just sex was never a topic. So let alone um, homosexuality or different sexual orientation or sexual exploration. And then when I leave and I go overseas and I'm exposed to this, you know, I'm 16 and, expo and I'm exposed to like everyone, right? Different religions, different uh, races, different nationals and different sexual orientation. And um, I guess men, cause I said in an only girl school, but you know, it wasn't like, I wasn't, I was technically not allowed to talk to boys, but you know, it was more the shame I would bring versus you're strictly not allowed. Like my parents are a bit more relaxed about it. So they're like, oh mm -hmm. yeah, okay, you're going out with your friends, just be careful. Um, so when I saw that incident happen of the gay wedding and I initially had written anonymously with another, with a few other journalists about the article, about the incident. And I posted it on my social media after the article was written because it was the first time we made it public nobody else wanted to make it public um I didn't even know the term extremism existed at the time I was just like this is wrong on so many levels and I don't agree with this and my friend's like have you tried checking out ex-Muslims of North America and I'm like no and I opened their page and I'm like I agree I agree I agree I agree like what is this I didn't even know I was an ex-Muslim I didn't even know that um I agreed with so much of that page or that group than I had initially <laughs> planned on because I while living overseas I had been so embodied with progressive values that any regressive value or religious value that contradicted mine um, it was an easy drop-off so women not being equal to men I was like I don't believe in this and I had never read the Quran in that much depth when I was you know after that incident um and when i did i started crying and i'm like this there's there's no way where this book says you can have peace with each other if you disagree in faith it's always like they have to believe us and if they don't you kill them or you know god is going to punish them severely because they don't and you know strike you know strike a war and everything and i was like but where is that part that clearly says you know, and they always have a lot of people have this verse that says your religion is yours, my religion is mine. And then the next verse is like, except we are correct. So you'll come back to us. like you'll come and they're like, except and I was like, oh, OK. And then the, the whole verse on, you know, if you kill one man, you kill a nation. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, this is good. Right. And then they're like, oh, this only applies to the certain Jewish men. But then if they fight with you in faith, then you're allowed to kill them. So there was this all footnotes on the next verses. And I'm like, so these were all verses that people used when, you know, I was when I was discussing Islam where I thought it was violent. Everyone's like, but Islam says this. And I'm like, yeah, but the next verse right after it says kill them if they disagree with you in faith. And they're like, oh, no, you're wrong. And I'm like, so but you're right about the first one. So it was really interesting that a lot of people, including myself, had never really read about the book in depth. But that 
moment, that incident was so pivotal for me that it really highlighted that, you know, all the things that I'd heard about different communities in the West or um, in like Saudi Arabia or any part of the Middle East that would criticize against people was happening in my community. And I, I know my, I, I guess my family, we'd never really spoken about homosexuality, but homophobia was so, it was ingrained without question, not because, not because there was a scientific reason for it, but because religion had told us to. And it's only now that because I became an activist and fight, like was fighting against all of this, that my family is willing to like, go like, oh, well, it's your life. Like, you know, if anybody's gay, like, I don't care. Um, so like, just, just having that level of tolerance has increased because I started challenging them. I'm like, why do you believe what you believe in? Um, and, you know, so, so, so that's how, you know, the community aspect came down boiling and that's how I began to slowly discover that journey that I, these are not my values right. and the God question, I think it was the scary, the scary part was not, I guess the scary part about leaving Islam was never that in my head now God didn't exist or he did exist or anything because it was never a big part of my life even if the whole religion is based on fear from God but I think the biggest part was a loss of identity because then I didn't know who I was was, even though I'd become this different person I worked in like as you know did my bachelor's and master's in IT and everything I had a career a lot of my identity was supposed to be tied to my faith and when I left it I'm like then who am I like do I have to be in another faith does it have to be another community does it have to be my own thing can it be either or or is it everything and that was I think what was really scary was because for so long I had been part of that identity that I no longer resonate with because I never questioned it before and that's and that's when when I left and I started talking about it I got a lot of other people messaging me, a lot of women going like, you know, I don't have to, like, you know, I'm like, they're like, I don't know what I know about is like, I don't know what I think about Islam at the moment, but there's a sexism or this honor abuse or, you know, my family member had tried to sexually assault me. Um, and, you know, they, they talk about all of these experiences. And I was like, I've never been brought up like this. I can I, I cannot relate I wish I could, but I cannot relate. And that's when I, me and another friend uh, who, you know, we wanted to do more outreach programs that what happened to me in terms of like, you know, me discovering ex-Muslim of North America, but for other women in Sydney. So we were trying to open a group that was like more Facebook ads based. And then we realized we can't really run ads. But then I was like, but we get all these stories. We should do something with it. Like we should have a place where people can vent out and their stories are displayed and their voice counts. And usually when we hear about Islam, it's always people practicing the faith or people who have studied extensively about religion. And there's not enough criticism that comes out, except when it does, it's considered as a the far right criticism uh, coming from far right conservatives um and that's where the criticism comes from so it's always embodied with bits of racism or just you know this cognitive dissonance with christianity versus islam they're like oh 
no, Islam is bad, Christianity is a lot better. And I was like, no, but like, what if we, even if people change faith, they go through this certain trauma or phase where they should be able to talk about what it was like when they were Muslim, because these are voices of Muslim women as well, like women who were brought up in a Muslim background. So that's when we opened Faith as a Job and it turned out like it was a storytelling platform and then it evolved because our stories after like a hundred or something stories, it just felt like you were reading like five of the same stories because there was so much in common, not just abandoning the faith, but even just being within the faith, there was like so much in common with sexism, with misogyny, with the head covering, how they removed it. Um, you know, people who'd worn the niqab, the burqa, the face covering, and then the first time they remove it, it just, you know, the experience she described was that I felt my face felt naked. And, mm. you know, while I couldn't relate to it, other people could. And I was like, well, this is great that people are being able to relate to it, but then how, how do we take the next step where people get help? We can't help everybody escape. It's never going to be to that, like, like it's never going to come to that. But what if we started empowering women from the start, which is how do we get you to establish boundaries with your family? How do we get you support for mental health? Um, and one also remove the stigma that exists despite religious backgrounds, like, you know, mental, the stigma around mental health, but also having a professional talk to you and help you through what you're going through. And um, it's only recently that we opened a mental health program, but I remember when I was, you know, the only one with Faithless Hijabi, like we had a team of board members who were on the background and silent, but I was like talking to 12 cases while having a full-time job in one week and everybody was like suicidal, not feeling well. And I was, it was, it was too much for me. And that's mm. when the idea of the mental program, mental health program was, I can take initial risk requests and I can take escalations, but everything in between should definitely go to a professional because I can only listen to you. I can't do anything else. And I'm probably not the best person that you should be talking to. Um, so that's where Faithless Ajabi came in. And I guess the background on my, the background on me standing up to the community while being a Muslim against homophobia really set the tone in terms of, I disagree with you. And that's when they slowly realized I was a threat to their community because a lot of people were listening to me. And they didn't have to, they didn't have to not be homophobic to listen to me. Right. They could right. still disagree with the homosexuality. Okay, maybe homophobia is not the correct word. They can still disagree with homosexuality because they've been told to. They're not necessarily mm -hmm. homophobic. But um, they were listening to me. They were Muslim mm -hmm. women who would follow me and listen to me and sometimes always get really mad because I don't agree with one or two things. And I usually get DM saying I always follow your work I don't necessarily agree with you but there's some things that you talk about that really resonate with me I um, mean it's not personal experience it's just, just me talking about feminism or women empowerment and just opening those I guess those seeds of doubt within people Sorry. and Sorry. when I went to Tanzania uh, so when I went to Tanzania and my brother was going is going through this divorce and separation on a Saturday that he was meant to meet his daughter me and him went to pick him up so I was like yep yeah. so it was an, it was so that was a religious school but that school is used on weekdays for academic schooling and it's still private property but I go in pick her up and there was this board there was a small a4 or a3 sheet 
um, border notice on the paper saying, please dress modestly during a hijabi women. And, you know, like this is our rules and whatnot. And I took a screenshot and I put it on my Instagram story saying, can you imagine if you were in the West and somebody went like, no hijabs allowed? Like, can you like, and, I, and, and they, 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 they didn't demand people to wear hijabs because not all women wore hijabs who were using those, they, the facility like the park or the school grounds for sports. Um, but they required modesty. So I would imagine nobody in shorts and sleeveless for women. Um, hmm. But the funny thing was after I posted it, literally the next week, there was a two meter board with the same thing printed at the entrance that I got in with. And me and my brother just looked at each other and we were like, what? They were so scared of me me posting that one image and just talking about the bias and you know that also helped my family understand they're like yeah you're right like you know why do why do our schools force girls to wear hijab when they're not muslims you know like what if the other way what if i was told not to wear a hijab um and and then you know the next week when I still went in, I, I was wearing long sleeves. It wasn't like hijab was mandatory. There were other people who weren't wearing hijab. Women as well picked up my niece, and um, my brother gets a call from the old president of the community, who's now a trustee, and he's like, "Your sister was there to pick up your daughter." And my brother's like, "And?" And I was like, "She's not allowed in." And he's like, "On what grounds?" They're like, "Oh, don't you know?" And they're like, "What?" And then he went like, oh, she left Islam. And they're like, so only Muslims are allowed in your ground? Like, there are other people. You have teachers who are not Muslim. And then he's like, oh, you know, she talks about Islam. We don't want her in, in the school. And his, my brother's like, well, I wanted informal writing. And until you give it to me, I'm not going to comply. And they're like, if you don't comply, we're going to boot your daughter and your sister out because my sister also studies there. Um, my sister's. Yeah, so my sister and my niece are two years apart. So they they study, like, you know, they study in that Islamic school. And I was just like, what just happened? And then I have a relative who works in the school teachers meeting who told me that they were so scared that their reasoning for kicking, kicking you out was like, what if she makes our kids question? And I was right. like, what? There it is. <laughs> and then, you know, my sister there had a few... So my sister had a few friends. Yeah. So my sister is 14 now, but she had a few friends who were like, oh my God, they're massive fans of yours. And I'm like, but you're for, like, obviously you're 14 year olds, but I'm pretty sure like <laughs> going to madrasa isn't your choice. But it's nice to know that, you know, people listen to me, even young people, um, that mm -hmm. they're in their minds already that fought that battle at an early age than when I got the opportunity to fight. Um, and I tried not communicating in school grounds as much because I know what that would mean for them if their parents saw it. Because I was that girl you shouldn't talk to. Right. Like that's how scared so many parents were. I still have parents. I still have. I still had girls who messaged me. They're like, "Look, please don't tell my mom I talked to you." And they're like, 16 years." They're like, "But you were brought up in the Islamic school. It's like, don't be like Zara to try defending your position, but it was so hard because people were bullying me." And my right. baby sister was bullied as well. They're like, oh, you're an atheist sister. And, you know, she got a lot of anxiety uh, from all of this. So that community had ingrained, like the parents had ingrained that idea onto their kids that I was such a bad person because I left religion. Not that I've done all this human rights work. And, I, and my visit 
lived in Tanzania, I was working with a lot of orphanages. So I didn't care what religion they were from. Like, you know, my role was if you have something to donate, you know, I'll come pick it up, I'll clean it up and, you know, separate it into ages and gender. And I was like passing it along. And that's when I slowly realized how much I, how much the community was, I guess, scared of me or just scared of any person defying it. And the more they acted on it, the more people would listen to me more, the more they saw people siding with me. So mm-hmm. the whole kinging out of school grounds was never made public until six. So, you know, until six weeks later, where I was like, okay, well, no letter has been sent. I'm going to put it on Facebook. So I wrote about it. And then that's when the teachers found out that this person had actually called us. And the teachers were like, so why did you kick her out? She was only here to pick up her knees. And then, you know, they found out that, you know, they saw that people were supporting me because it was discriminatory. And I think, I think because I was there and because like my posts, like were still on my page, on my Facebook while I was in Tanzania and this has nothing to do with the present. It was all about religion. It was all about, you know, the two men kissing in front of like a Photoshop picture of two men kissing in, in front of the Kaaba just four days before my arrest. Um, but the post that they did. So this is how the arrest worked out in the end, which was, I was early December. So this is before I posted anything, but I was still continuing my activism in my own Facebook, but not against Tanzania because I know a lot of Tanzanian activists because I was careful not to do that because I know what happens to local Tanzanian activists. And I didn't personally have a grudge against Tanzania, even though I didn't appreciate the COVID handling of the president or his authoritarian ways in the country. But I was like, no, I'm not going to be stupid and post about it. I'm still going to do what I do, which is my online activism. Right. Um, and, but you were still, you were you still know, considered. And that's, that's allowed to, like, it's a freedom, it's a secular country. You can't just. Yeah. Well, you can, yeah, but your I, local I, I community guess, yeah, was. Yeah, I was still considered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're, the, exactly. the government yeah. can't so, come yeah, down was, on you, but your community can and is trying to. What it sounds yeah. Like. yeah yeah and they can't do it in a legal way because there was right. no legal law that i was breaking so right. what they what happened was and i'll be releasing a video soon on this like, like explaining the facts of actually what happened but i we only pieced it together but what happened on the 24th of december was my brother gets a call and i was meant to get a last minute flight after my so my brother's birthday is on the 26th but I was meant to get a flight last minute to the UK because flights were empty. It was really cheap. And I was like, oh, when I'm ready to go, I'll just take a flight and go. You don't need a COVID test. We didn't need it at the time. So, um, and, you know, on the 24th, he gets a call and he's like, oh, you've been summoned by the cyber crime office and you need to come in. My brother's like, I want a written summons. So on the 25th of December, now this is Christmas day. Nobody really works on Christmas day, especially not the cyber crime unit. They're not essential police services um and they're like oh we have the written summit and you need to come in and my brother was like shit i don't know what i did that they, they wouldn't tell me what it's about and it was very it was very uh unconstitutional but also illegal to do that um and then we just found one of our random tax lawyers and we're like what do we do and the guy's like okay i'll handle this like you know he's a, a bit of civil law experience that he had um he's like it's a public holiday my client's not going to come in until monday and they agreed to that. On Monday, my brother goes in 
And then, you know, I was in the car because he's like, can you come? I'm a little scared. So I'm like, okay, we don't, we, nobody knew what it was about. We thought it was a small thing or like, oh, it's probably just going to be like, oh, somebody complained about you and you need to write a formal apology or anything. And that's what we thought it would be. But then he sits down, like, so he goes in five minutes later, I get a call and he's like, Zara, this is about your Facebook posts. This is about you. And I was like, hang on why is he talking to me like that? Like, you know, it was, it was, you could tell it was a loudspeaker, but he's also very serious, panicked. And I was like, okay. So I tweeted very quickly because just four days before that, um, I posted up a photo about um, the two men kissing in front of the cabas. So I'm like, there's no possible reason why I would ever be called in um, unless somebody had reported one of my posts and go like, well, this offends me. And even then I can defend my position saying, well, it doesn't break the law. So you can't mm-hmm. really, I can't, but then they call in and they show me posts about this. So they, I come in and they're like, where's your Tanzanian ID card? And I'm like, excuse me. They're like, you're a national ID card, your NIDA card. And I'm like, I'm not Tanzanian. They're like, how are you not Tanzanian when your entire family is? And I'm like, I'm Australian. They're like, what passport do you have? And I'm like, where's your passport? And I'm like, this wasn't even about me. Why am I here? And they showed me the post of the president. And I'm like, I came to Tanzania in September. These posts are written in May. So so let's be super clear for everybody who doesn't have any clue what we're talking about right now, that you had made a post critical directly of the president of Tanzania while you were not in the country back in May of 2020. Yes. And they're so the bringing post, this up now in December. After I've been there for the four country. months, after I've been there for four months, entered yeah. with my Australian passport with the same fingerprints and renewed yep. my visa every month. And the posts weren't critical as such. It was just like the, you know, the news, I was reposting the news where they went, Tanzania has failed the handling of COVID-19. And I was like, this is such a fail of a president. Yep. Like people are dying. I mean, that's, the other that's, one that's pretty critical. <laughs> I mean, one, could argue, one could argue I was only portraying what the news said. Well, well um, one could then, argue that, but I think I think we're <laughs> I think we're pretty clear that that was a pretty critical comment about the president. Now, I got nothing on it. I mean, this is a daily occurrence yeah. in Western countries. We are critical of our governments seven days a week. We have that freedom, and that's actually the reason why I'm kind of highlighting this right now is because while you're not even in the country. You're posting this you go into the country the community's pissed at you and trying to work out how they can stop you and then suddenly the police are calling you about a post you made when you weren't even in the country exactly okay good so i just want to make sure everybody gets the picture here as to what is actually going on because this is yeah and and the the rails you know and the posts were done in march in May, there were two posts. One of them was the president jailing somebody for laughing at him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was um, somebody laughed at his photos when he was young and I guess wore oversized clothes and he was a comedian. So that's why the president was offended. But right. according to law, that wasn't hate speech. So you can't really be arrested for that. It wasn't like somebody was calling out for a protest or anything. So even if I am critical of the government, it's not against the law as such. Like it's not in their law book that you don't have the freedom of speech. 
they no, just, it's not in the law book. just charge but... you with other things. So that person was then charged with other things, same as me. But the only difference was that I am Australian and he was Tanzanian. So I had more of an international, like he had a bit of an international media um, outburst, but I had, I guess, I wouldn't say immunity, but I had foreign a foreign government involved now. Right. Or so I thought I did. Well, exactly. We th that's exactly what you thought was going to happen. But now let me ask you one quick question to clarify, and then we'll pick right back up. Did the police actually think when they went and got you or when they when they when they when you came into the police station, did they were they under the impression that you were still a Tanzanian citizen that you that they didn't know about the Australian citizenship change? Yeah. So let's just say in the simplest of words, uh. they were quite dumb to make that move without their research. Somebody gave them a profile, somebody showed them two or three posts. Um, one of them, including the one that I wrote about the community, which is my experience and very valid and it's a community. So you can't sue me for anything because it's all based on true. And if I'm lying, you'll have to prove it to me. And I have you know, threats and whatnot that have come my way. So I've always put out evidence, like I'm not making things up. But the only two they knew in their head that would stick were those two posts about the president. Even then, it wasn't breaking the law, but they could scare me enough. But I guess they tapped into the wrong thing when they're like, where's your ID card? And I'm like, well, I'm not Tanzanian. And they're like, so you had a Tanzanian passport before? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, did you surrender? And I'm like, no, I just never used it. Now, at that point, I didn't know what the law was. Right. But mm -hmm. according to law, if you get a citizenship in a dual citizenship country, your Tanzanian citizenship is automatically revoked. And there is no law saying that you must comply to surrender your passport. It is voluntarily that you surrender your passport. And if you do not, the fees is 500,000 T shillings, which is 200 US dollars, 250 US dollars and or six months in jail if you can't pay for that. But you know, that's one of them. And then they come in and then they're like, you know, so they 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 make me write a statement for like eight hours. So they, they write it, but they like question me for like not eight hours, sorry, six hours. And it was so unneeded. And I'm in the room for six hours and all I have is water. And it wasn't even about me that they captured. And they realized how, because I told my brother and I'm like, you have to call the consulate and the police freaked out. And he's like, what do you mean call the consulate? And I'm like, I have their contact because I was getting threats. So I am going to call the consulate. I'm not, he's going to call it, but it was like a public holiday. So they were closed. But at the same time, he's like, oh, it's okay. We'll send them an email or we'll call your president. And I'm like, Australia doesn't have a president. And he right. just shut up. He just shut He was so scared. He's like, oh, you think you're big enough? And I'm like, no, like, you know, like it was, it was just like, I know how scared they were after they had arrested me and the news went public and um i was like well you kind of got the wrong activist because not only have you unfairly locked me up but you failed to do any research on me you failed to to know that i have this many twitter followers and this is a threat that i've always received and when you act on these threats you have now done exactly what i was talking about what i've been fighting for other women about and I wish they had just, but then like my interrogating officer, it was, so the police at that point didn't know what I was an activist for, um, but then I wasn't a resident there. So I was a tourist. So like, if we're saying that 
any person who is gay or is a supporter of gay rights shouldn't visit Tanzania. That's a bad precedence to set because that's against the law. And I remember that one of the commissioner, police commissioner, went on public asking to hunt down the gays, was dismissed from his position when Germany went like, we're not going to give you foreign aid if this person is still on board and if you take those actions. Right. So they found fired him immediately because it depends and it depends on foreign aid, um, which which is why my case also sparked up because it was one of the very few countries that failed to report on COVID cases. And my criticism that I was arrested for was on COVID. But then the government, when, when the news went out in public in Australia, which was obviously, you know, in the future for Tanzania, and the government then lied and said, oh, it's because she held two different passports. And I'm like, really? So I've been here for four months. You know, I've renewed my visa legally with the same office. And not then have you questioned if I held two different passports, especially now, especially when you can see that I'm staying with my brother because you fill it out. Um, and my brother's passport number is there on like, you know, the letter that says that I'm living with a family. Not then did you try checking, do you have a Tanzanian passport that you haven't surrendered? But only when I was arrested. And then, you know, I, and then the SIM card, it was really stupid. They arrested me for, they're like, oh, you illegally use somebody else's SIM card registered under somebody else's name. And I'm like, no, it's like me borrowing a phone of my sister because she registered the SIM card. It was under her name and she notified the telecommunications company that my sister is using it while it's on, she's on holiday and they issued the SIM card. So technically they're the ones who are also wrong, but mm -hmm. that again, there's no law saying that I can't use a SIM card that have, that I've notified the telecommunications company that I'll be using, but also the law is against you using somebody else's ID, which I never did. Right. To register the SIM cards. Right. None so in other words, in, in other words, they're, they're making stuff up just to be able to make themselves right for having done something that was totally, totally wrong. Yeah. And I guess because I had tweeted about the blasphemy post before I went in, like literally hit tweet as soon as they took my phone, it was already out there. So it was natural that people would be curious, fight for my right or even be but they're like, what's what's happening? Tanzania is not a Muslim country. Why is she arrested? Mm -hmm. um, but while the charges weren't blasphemy, it was motivated by blasphemy. Right. Um, and it was it was so obvious that that was happening because, um, you know, the charges just seemed too stupid on paper. The and I was like, okay, fine, take me to court. Like, let me go to court. I was like, I'm happy to go to court in like that first week. And they're like, no, 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 we're still finding. And they took my phone and everything. And I was like, what are you possibly finding? Like, what do you think you will find? So I had to go back and think about it. I'm like, I don't know what they would find. Like, what are they going to find? Um, and I think it was just a tactic to scare me because what happened after that weekend, like when I was released and, you know, it was a New Year's weekend, my passport was stolen from their custody. So somebody within the police stole my passport. And that's my Australian passport. And I found out about this like two, three days later. And, you know, that's when I knew. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys fucked up. But they wouldn't tell me that they right. had lost my passport. They hadn't officially told me that they'd lost my passport. And my lawyer as well didn't tell the Australian consulate 
So my suspicions were he was he was very competent when we hired him. He was very sharp and everything. And as the case grew bigger and they realized who had done this to me because of political and monetary power, I have a suspicion that other people might be involved into making him be less involved in the case. So mm-hmm. pretty much you couldn't trust anyone there. Like the only person I could trust was my brother. Um, How long and- total did they hold you before they let you go? So in prison, like in custody mm-hmm. from interrogation to when they let me go, 32 hours. Okay. But then I was detained twice. So, so, But then I was, I guess, physically in their presence in lock, not locked up in jail, but even in a room twice again. Right. But yeah, because they came in and total, got you again. I was detained and, for. Yeah. yeah. So, so they, so I went to the immigration to have an interview, and that's where they were trying to threaten me. And I said, I only speak English, and I could understand Swahili. It's not like I couldn't. I just said I only speak English, but that's mostly on a technicality because my Swahili isn't that fluent. English is my first language, and they threatened me and they're like if you tell anybody about this interrogation will hurt your father and they took down my dad's details and yeah okay and uh, and you know they just kept making things up and they're like what if somebody goes to america on your passport and i'm like in my head i'm like do you know how visa processes work do you know what pain it is to be a Tanzanian you need to provide 50 documents because I've been to the U.S. I've been to the U.S. I've been to like I've traveled to 40 countries and I've had to apply for visas for many of those and like the Schengen covers most of the Europe but I know what the application looks like and your name has to match and they're not blind they can see the photo on the path and I just looked at him and I'm like you're wasting my time and you know I knew they had no substance because I asked it because actually my lawyer was another lawyer from the same agent like the same firm was with me and I'm like can you show me the law that I broke and then you know before he could do that the person goes outside the room and then comes back and it's like oh yeah I spoke to the Australian consulate and they said that as part of your citizenship um, process they asked you to surrender your passport and you didn't do it and I'm like I've actually spoken to them just this morning can I call them and I told my lawyer, can you call them? And they took his phone away. Wow, they took, his they phone took your away lawyer's and they made phone me pay away. To get it back. They, they, they took, took your his phone away and they made phone. me pay for it to get it back. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because yeah, they were like, so. he's colluding with her. Because your lawyer and was, like, was colluding like, with you. Because <laughs> all I did was ask him to call my consulate because I'm an right. Australian citizen. Right. But and unfortunately, I was like, show me the law I broke because I really want to see that law. Right. Right. But None unfortunately, of it stuck. He, None he, of it now, stuck. <laughs> so, okay. So, so this nonsense is going on. Then you, then the Australian consulate, he, he, he gets his phone back and they still yeah, don't help you. Yeah. We had to. So, yeah. So they still don't help me. Um, so, they were like, oh, just finish it under the table when the governments get involved and everything. And I'm like, I'm trying and there's nothing I can do. Right. And they're like, oh, now that you've made it public, it makes it more complex. And I'm like, well, you weren't there to help me. You literally said you can't do anything. Right. And, you know, I was like, they've, and then I find out my passport has been lost. And I called them and I'm like, I've lost my passport, so I can't travel. And they're like, oh, well, we'll need 
need a lost report for you to get the passport back. I'm like, that's fine. I just want to know I can get my passport if I get you the lost report. And they're like, yeah, 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 we have to like, you know, that would, and also knowing that your charges have been dropped and everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's okay. So it took them six to seven weeks because while I was arrested and that week was happening before I went to immigration again, within that week, um, there was a group formed of other activists and a lot of other ex-Muslims trying to help me. So like 10 people. And one of them leaked screenshots of the legal case where when I went, you know, I just gotten out of jail and I'm like, guys, it's not blasphemy and we need to clarify it, but um, we can't say release Zara because I'm going back to the police station and I need to report. And my lawyer hasn't agreed on this. And then, you know, on the 31st, I go to report and they're like, oh, you're coming back again on the 4th. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that gives us enough time. Like, you know, the weekend and New Year's is over and Australian consulate may be able to provide help and everything. So, you know, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter what my excuse was or what that, but, you know, I was, I felt a bit safer after the 31st when they're like, oh, you're not coming back until like the fourth. And I was like, okay, cool. So I have enough time to do, I guess not damage, but like to share my voice and get like enough authorities involved um and plan with my lawyer as well and then on the 31st night which was new year's eve i was like okay well we're all going out to eat dinner like we can't just stay at home and be miserable like i'm on bail nothing's gonna happen so we went out and i took a photo and i sent it to the group that was trying to help me and i was like guys thank you so much like look please relax there's nothing we can do and there's nothing you can do on the outside um we just have to like you know i was like look i even had cheesecake and i was like thank you all and then somebody from the group, I'm not sure of what reason, started leaking out of context images and numbers and numbers of people who, I guess, whose numbers shouldn't be leaked at all because they're, you know, like high profile activists and whatnot. And that all became a funny thing where people are like, oh, Zara wasn't really arrested. She went out for cheesecake. And I'm like, yes, bail conditions don't say you can't eat food. And why do you care where I go? That's not the point. So in People other words, the social media responses to this were kind of all over the place. It was kind of all over the place, especially yeah. because the person who leaked it was a huge activist. And, you know, she apologized. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but you don't you didn't only endanger me, you endangered my family. Yeah. Because I mean, the police, because the police then found out that I was communicating to the outside world from another number, mm-hmm. not that it wasn't allowed, but, but it threatened them even more. So they mm-hmm. came to my house for multiple checks without a warrant. I don't know what they were looking for. But they were like, you know, and I'm like, you can't stop me. I'll just get another number and another phone and another number. Like, it doesn't say that I can't communicate. That would be illegal. Yeah. Um, or just write emails and whatnot. But, you know, you endangered my family. You endangered other people in the group who live in the Middle East. And I was like, there was no excuse. Like, I don't care what grudge you had against me or what disagreement you had. That could have all waited until I was out. That could have all just waited. I don't like, I don't know what was happening there when I'm like, there's so little time I have to focus on this very childish behavior. And yeah, this is I so let me let me what make the, what, what was worse is that it wasn't just social media. Uh-huh. Well, it wasn't yeah, just no, social media it, that used those screenshots. Activist. The police used them to say she's well, she's having fun. 
Right. Exactly. But the police right. also used it because they had, you know how they have official trolls like Saudi Arabia has government trolls and whatnot. The police mm. also used it. They go like, oh, well, she's she's having fun. She's out of jail. Why is she worried? My brother's like, this isn't her country. She is not Tanzanian. She, is loose. she lost her job because you wouldn't give her her passport back with no charges. And she can't go back to the, like, you know, she has to go back to the UK. Like her life is there. Mm-hmm. Like she's, and she's not safe here. Like the multiple threats I was getting and they're like, yeah, but she's going out to eat and whatnot. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Right. So the whole social media, even though it was a very small thing, put, I guess, a fellow activist and ex-Muslim activist in bed with Islamists who really don't like me. But also colluding was the police who went in and they're like, what can we get more about her? Like people have done in-depth deep research. And oh my God, the stupid part was people went through like ears of my thing and saying, oh, she's obsessed with cheesecake. And then, you know, just editing images on a pig's face and everything. And I was like, you guys had a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> there were these theories that came out. They're like, oh, Zara was arrested for this, this, this. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, please tell me more about why I was arrested. Because clearly, you know more than I do. So educate me. Mm. And it was, it was just like, it was heartbreaking because I was betrayed by somebody who is meant to be running this big organization. Um in Canada and you know has 200,000 plus follower followers and then you wow you sent those screenshots to somebody who clearly had made was obsessed with me and had made 15 videos about me and leaked our numbers and I was getting threats like on top of everything in Tanzania I am now getting phone calls from Pakistan and like other parts of Germany threatening me like right. that's not some shit I need to put up with <laughs> no, not like, at all. That's, that's, that's really that's, unfair. Uh, well, um, no, totally. That's called getting. And I doxed. was like, so. Right, mm-hmm. your numbers being given out, right, so people can find you, you know, etc. So that's yeah, that's that's not good. So you're getting it from both sides on this. I I was getting it from all sides. Where even yeah. I mean, I can't blame many of the bigger organizations. But I was a little upset that after all my work that I've done with them, so other atheist organizations, after all, some of them were really supportive, but after all my work I've done with them on helping other atheists, they questioned my credibility when I was arrested because of those screenshots. Right, right. And I was like, I'm sorry, have we not worked together for two years for you to know that I wouldn't be making this shit up? And right. that while I wasn't technically arrested on blasphemy charges, it was very obvious if you live in the West and don't know what corruption is like in the East, anybody can be bought off to a point that government officials were paid off as well. They arrested me. They delayed it. And I was like, you know, it's, it's, I know it's an unfamiliar concept to you, but this exists. And I've right. worked with somebody in Kenya who had a very similar thing where, you know, the local group, this local community group would get him arrested on like just false charges and it happened three times and they've bashed him and whatnot and it happens in kenya where the authorities will just take the money and arrest them and i was like this is a risk we face in developing secular countries but let alone what could happen even in the west and it 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 opens up a scary world out there for a lot of ex-muslims 
But I was really shocked to see that people from my community, when they heard about my arrest, they were celebrating. They weren't even talking about the charges, every threat. And I took screenshots of all. They're like, oh, yeah, she talks about Allah. She's been in prison for such a long time. She said, Allah's gay. This is karma, bitch, and everything. And I was like, wow, talk about a religion of peace and people who are peaceful. Like, it really was such a highlight. Yeah. Yeah, real eye opener. Um, but yeah, no. Well, felt like <laughs> how did you? Yeah, it okay, was let's... it was a real eye opener. It was very yeah, yeah. I'll bet. How did you end up getting out of this situation? So, because you're, you know, they, they've come and gotten you. They've taken your passport. Now it's lost. So you're stuck in this country. You've lost your job in the UK. You're getting trashed on social media. I mean, this is not good. This is not a good picture. And I imagine when you were in the middle of it, you didn't have was, the advantage of knowing that this was going to be okay. Like, it, you know, like you did get away from all of this, but what, no, so how, no, how did was, that happen? How did you get away from all this? Um, so I will pat myself on the back for having that much courage to hold on, but I had a lot of support from my friends to keep me mentally sane. But mm -hmm. it, it was also my family who were resilient throughout all of this, right? They, they didn't see me brave. But what had really hurt me was when I lost my job because I loved my job. And it wasn't because of anything personal or my arrest. It was purely because I couldn't go back to the UK because they hadn't given me my passport. But the scariest I felt was when I got my lost report and I give it to the Australian government and I, sorry, the Australian consulate in Kenya. I've posted it, everything paid for express shipping and loads of money to like get this there. And they have it and they're like, we can't issue a issue your passport until we hear back from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I'm like, hang on, you've known this issue since October. I got arrested in December. It is now mid-February, like it is now like, you know, 10th of February. My charges were dropped on the 3rd. And I could still go back to the UK in this eight day gap where I, where UK would still take me in. Even if I have eight days left, they'll give me an extension because they know I live there and reside there. Um, but, I, yeah, so um, you're not giving a passport and you want the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Tanzania to admit that they arrested me on no charges and I didn't go to court and they've lost Australian government property. You actually think they would do that? And my lawyer sent them an affidavit saying, you're not going to receive that letter, but these are, these are the events and she is not safe here. She needs to leave. She's getting a lot of threats. And now that she's free, people can actually hurt her. Because the, you know, the local government also doxed her. So right. now people who didn't know about me before now know about me. I couldn't leave the house. And they're like, oh, just stay indoors with your family. And I'm like, that's not a solution for my safety. Right. That's not a solution. They could come kicking down doors. They could do whatever they want. But that's not the point. You, you not only endanger me, endanger my family because I'm with them now. And, you know, and I was, you know, it. I was at a point where I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like I was, I just given up. I'm like, what do I do at this point? And I messaged somebody who initially on my case went like, oh, if you need any help. And I'm like, yes, I need help. I, you know more about international law and you're from Australia. What do I do? And then he comes back to me the next day and he's like, we're ready to take your case in pro bono. I wasn't even asking for them to take my case, but he's like, you're going to need lawyers. And they were by far amazing 
amazing lawyers like you know three days of them hire like you know them joining my case me signing all the papers and everything they managed to secure um in a, um, a meeting with the department of foreign affairs in australia and in two hours my passport was printed but then the big challenge was getting a flight to australia because not only do they cost six grand but only a thousand people can enter within a week um and I asked DFAT to put me on a VIP list or a private list and they didn't do anything. But luckily I had a friend who worked as a travel agent. So I was like, just get me a flight. Like, uh, like you're more competent than Australian government at this point. And I got a flight. And then because the police in Tanzania were so incompetent in Australia, never bothered to like call them and do any verifications. I was detained again at the airport because I was on a no fly list from the 3rd of January. While I was arrested on the 28th, but the news came out on the 3rd of January. So that's when they got really alerted. Um, and that's when I was, and that's when they also, that's when also my passport was stolen. So I was detained again. And I was like, I'm, I was this close to sitting on a plane that costed me so much. And I was the first, it was the first time I cried. It was the first time I cried. And I just was like, I've not seen you cry this entire time. And I'm like, I was this close to just leaving this country and like saying goodbye and you know it was a Friday night so we couldn't do anything on the weekend and then my brother on the Monday went to the immigration they're like well her charges are dropped you can verify this with the police blah 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 you know we need to get her off that list and they're like oh the person who's meant to do this has a funeral today my brother's like no she's bought another ticket she's leaving tonight um and and you know, he broke down in front of the immigration official and they saw all of this was so wrong on so many accounts. And the person was like, fine, I'll, I'll help you with this because it was so unfair. Um, and then we finally, like two hours before I was going to the airport, the, the name was picked out and I got on my flight. My brother had to buy a ticket as well to make sure I went through immigration. Fine. Um, so we lost two tickets on one night. So my ticket, his ticket, and then we bought another one. And then it was like a four day flight because I went to Dubai and then Singapore and then like an 18, 12 hour stopover for each place and then coming to Australia. And then just yesterday or day, sorry, four days ago, I was given my quarantine fees bill and I'm like, I'm not paying three grand. Like, I didn't choose to be here. So I'm like, I'm not paying this and I will contest it. And if I need to get a lawyer in to pay that same amount to contest it, I will. Because this wasn't my fault. You messed mm. up. I would have gone to the UK. I wouldn't have to pay all of this. I wouldn't have to lose my job because you guys were incompetent. And by you guys, I mean DFAT. Like I was pointing out a specific body on the quarantine. But I was like, I lost so much. In fact, why don't you pay me? Because I lost so much and went into 40 grand of debt because I had to pay lawyers, flights, and that's like, yeah, lawyers. And then every other person who would like help you, you just pay them money. So if, even if somebody's like, oh, I'll arrange a meeting for you and you end up paying like $200 and it's just a meeting. But that's how Tanzania is governed. And we just met with so many people and my brother was my hero because he ended up, he ended up closing this case while talking to so many people and they knew that they were at a point where I am just going to explode on media and it's going to be horrible for them because now I have nothing to lose. And the one thing I was very careful was not tell the media that my passport was lost until I left. And then when I left, they, because my news came out first from my lawyers and from 
the people that I was talking to. And then Tanzania went like, we didn't lose her passport. How did she fly back? So I went to Twitter and I'm like, emergency passport, lost report, blurred out my name. But I was like, this is how I lost my passport. You literally have given me this from the same police station. And now you're lying. A government official is lying to the media. And, you know, the journalist himself was so shocked because the community also lied to them. And they're like, oh, we met the father on Wednesday. And I'm like, how did this community official who spoke to you meet my father when my dad is bedridden for three months? Like I actually showed him a photo and I'm like, my dad can't walk. You think he would go to the mosque like this? And he's like, so he lied to me. And I'm like, yeah, he lied to you. And to a point where he was there and he saw all the threats on my phone. And I'm like, here, these are the threats I received. And he was just like, they completely denied it. But he he told me something where he's like, they took it so personal when I was questioning them about you. Like, it was like, it was like it offended them personally versus, well, you know, somebody has allegations against the community and doesn't, isn't pointing out to member, but has sufficient evidence to think that you know it was you like a community as a whole and he's like every question I asked was so defensive and that while the government of Tanzania said I was on immigration charges you know the community leader went like oh how would I know if she insulted the president and everybody was like hang on nobody said that you know like nobody nobody said about insulting the president mm. um the charges she was on was on the charges she was on was on immigration so there was still like where did he get that from like obviously i said it on my side of the news but given he's tanzanian and he's talking about their law like nobody had said that and everybody was like oh and it was obvious, like it was so obvious that they were, they knew about all of this. But then the worst part was that when I came to Australia, I found out why there had been a police officer at 4 a.m. in my jail cell. Thankfully, there were other women. But the idea was they had, they were given money to not only arrest me for a couple of days, deny me bail when the bail was already processed on the day they arrested me. We're like, here's the bail and she needs to get out. They refused to process it. But the idea was all to get me raped so there were three policemen in the in the cell and they weren't expecting other women to be there because they were arrested last minute and not only did they come to my cell like they actually like I was sleeping and they held my face and woke me up and I screamed and they they were scared as well um so yeah it was I think that and that was that was uh correct me if I'm wrong that was three policemen traumatic who came into your cell at four in the morning, woke you up by grappling over your face. Around four-ish. Yeah. And then you screamed bloody murder and they got and they got out of there. Did I did I have that right? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And there were and other women had, in the, the cell this, that weren't and, expecting their new Right. And you're and you're now saying that you discovered after you got back to Australia that this had been arranged. That they were paid to do this. Yeah, there was no other because they only came to my cell. There were no right. other 
women. There was no other reason why they would come at that time because I know I got into the jail cell at about 11-ish, 11.30-ish. And that, you know, and at 6 a.m. is when the other women left and the sun wasn't out. So in between, like, when I needed to, like, get water or something or when the police came down, I'd always check for the time. And then, you know, I know that I slept after 2 o'clock. Um, and that's when the police came down. So it was an estimation of like 4 a.m. because the little light that you could see was not there. Um, But it was was a little hilarious when I was talking to the media here and they're like, so what did your prison cell look like? And they sent me this picture and I'm like, the picture looks like a hotel. We're talking about African cells that don't have mattresses, that don't have blankets, that have millions of mosquitoes. Like I had blood on my hands because I killed so many mosquitoes that night. Jesus. Um, and I'm like, no, it was completely different. And their toilets wow. wouldn't flush. And um, they have a bright white light just on the top. And, you know, yeah. Wow. And yeah, and it was, yeah, it was just, I think all of it was just, really different to how you would expect any other prison cell to be. So I Googled the worst prison cells and it was around that realm. It wasn't right. horrible. Right. Um, there weren't cockroaches. There could have been. But, you know, it was still pretty gruesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think you have to sell me on how bad a jail cell in an African country is. <laughs> you know, especially in you know a place like Tanzania. I, de- I definitely get it. And the and the the mosquito thing definitely communicates that this was pretty horrible. Uh, having three you know police officials come into your cell at four in the morning, wake you up. I mean, this is this is not good. None of this is good. And it and it's clear why there would be a lot of spin and attempted, you know, trying to cover this up or trying to to spin this to make it seem like it was something different than what it really was. Uh, fortunately, you know, you had a phone, yeah, and you're a citizen of a Western country, which affords you a whole lot of protections, or at least, you know, they're cautious about you where they wouldn't be about, say, local citizenry the same way. Would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, since my arrest, I got in touch with a lot of different activists who were jailed for two years and no charges. And, you know, I'm sure they went through worse stuff, but also the female activists constantly face threats to the point that one of them always has eyes on her, would never go out in public uh, to meet anybody. But it was, yeah, no, um, it would have been a lot worse if I was Tanzanian. Yeah, and that's then that's kind of an especially if point the media here. had come out, or maybe because the media wouldn't come out on it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because you know, because there's a point here, the which is, on. had it not been for the media, it could have probably ended sooner. Well, yeah, possibly could have ended worse as well, you know, if there hadn't been media on this. I mean, this is one of these things Absolutely. where we have to we have to look at the fact that, um, you know, that it is exposure that is that is, you know, that this this happened to you. It was it was moderated because of your status. And, you know, you were able to get the hell out of there finally with some lawyer help because you're you know, the countries weren't helping you. Um, I cringe to think about what happens to people who are not 
who don't have phones or who, you know, who have their phones taken away or who are cut off for some other reason or don't have those rights and privileges, right, from the from the citizenship. So uh, there's, you know, there could be lots of other stories like this where the communities decide, okay, we need to persecute somebody for stepping out of line, for becoming an apostate. They hate apostates in Islam. Really bad. <laughs> you know, it's a real they, thing. They do. Definitely you know? do. It was it was just God as a concept in Tanzania is atheism is so unheard of or free thinking or rather no God. They're like, but you must believe in something. And I'm like, I just don't believe in a higher power. Right. Um, but like, yeah, I I it's I guess as unusual as this story sounds to many of your audience it happens to different degrees to different people in different places so thinking about you know jordan helping this girl escape her family where you know the family are the problem and as a woman you have to be 40 to be emancipated and she wasn't at that age yet and now you have the authorities who are just like, well, we're just going to keep you back with your family. We're just going to tell them not to abuse you. Like that would actually work. Right. Um, and then a lot of them end up fleeing the country. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to tell, I, you know, when I found out about your story and I found out about this, I mean, knowing, you know, that there is this bigger, broader picture here. I, I wanted to finally get a little, you know, window to it on my on my program here because I'm I don't like authoritarians. <laughs> you know? I don't like extremist religious groups. I don't like people who who think that it's up to them to tell other people how to live their lives. I I really have a problem with that. You know, I'm 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 too Western that way, I suppose. But I just have this thing about that, you know. And so um, I think we need to highlight the fact that we have an awful lot of, uh, you know, this is an overused word. And I know that for some people, it's even kind of a, you know, an upsetting word, but we have a lot of privileges. And, you know, in, in the Western <laughs> I was world. Actually, I was actually going to, <laughs> I was actually going to point out the, the that, you know, when you said um, you don't like authoritarianism and it was related to Western I guess, values, it's really telling to see, not to you personally, but it's really telling for other people to see that a lot of times when, you know, women like me look for freedom, we're criticized, they're like, oh, you just want to be like the West. And I'm like, no, it's just progressive values. They're just yep. freedom. And there's just a lot of, you know, humanism. And it's just my choice. Why does it have to be such a familiar, unfamiliar concept to you? But I guess it is quite telling when, you know, um, the rest of the world outside the West think that, you know, all these ideas come from the West that, you know, people can't think about them, like, especially when you're not from the West or, right. or, or that, um, I guess the point I was trying to make was mostly around how critical when we go out of line or when we start thinking progressive pro progressively the criticism we get is it's all white people like you know i know i said the west but it's always like 
white people, Western, and it's all them influencing you. So when I initially was questioning religion, they're like, oh, it's because, you know, you live in the West. I'm like, yes, but also no, like, you know, it's it's not limited to that. It's, it's, it's a lot of like, I was exposed to a lot of things in the West that, you know, I had never known what freedom was like in some ways, or it's right. just that I didn't know I was caged because I had, I, I personally had a lot of privilege in Tanzania. Like, you know, I think people who are brought up in the West have a very different lifestyle. Like we have maids and chefs and drivers in Tanzania, and I'm in no way a wealthy person, but it's what many middle class people can afford in Tanzania to a certain degree. And, you know, when people talk about the world, the word privilege, it's so different in different concepts that we need to recognize that it's such a large it's such a broad term to I guess different people like I remember my mom saying why do you have to live in the west you can just come here you can have your own room and everything will be done for you and I'm like I have a job I have this life outside me just being your daughter or like you know having a house or a roof over me that demands that I work and earn and live and contribute to the society and everything and you know, it was it was just such a different concept for her. Yeah. Uh, my mom has um, my mom raised all six of us. Not that she was a single parent. My dad, my dad was the one working, and then my brother started joining his business. But it was such a different concept for her, where I was raised to be the same as well. Well, you know, when I when I wanted to do my masters or even just do my bachelor's, my mom was like, "Why are you studying so much? You're just gonna get married and have kids." And I'm like 28 and going strong, not having kids. But um, it was more that our ideas of independence were so different or that even the thought of independence or um, education was so different as well. Right. And I, I remember asking my mom that when I was 12, I wanted to remove the I wanted to remove the hijab. Why did you not let me? And she's like, you were forced in school and everybody was wearing it. And I tried my best raising you. That's what made me realize that while she wore the hijab when she was 23, after she married my dad, kids nowadays, and by nowadays, I mean in the last 30 years or so, are compelled to wear it at a younger age. And it was very much in alignment with my, for my community with the Iranian revolution, because we're, we follow the same sect. So the community has quite a union between Iran and how those politics affect us mm. as a separate community outside Iran, um, to a point that a lot of your religious tax goes to the same community but overseas and I'm like like they're going to give you a citizenship when Tanzania decides they don't want you anymore like this is your country this is where you should be investing in hmm. um, and I've always had this debate with my parents and I'm like if we're going to pay religious tax and if you want to give it to charity it should go where it's most needed which is close to home which is your home this is your home interesting but we always I think in a way we always felt like we always felt like foreigners but this was, but, but we were Tanzanians and I, you know, I would proudly go and say, I'm Tanzanian, like, and people were like, but you're not black. And I'm like, yeah, but we have different races in Tanzania, 
at the same time that was I guess that was home for me and you know I never believed in why I had to pay taxes or part of my savings to somewhere in Iran and I'm like but why like why is it not given to hmm. like Tanzania is a second foreign aid receiving country why are we sending funds overseas for charity when we can do it here how interesting I, did, I didn't even um, know that was a thing and slowly my family is now learning to go like oh yeah yeah no that is religious tax on your savings because that's how religious yeah. organizations make money right people who earn more yeah. pay more no, because very much. Somehow, I, I get it. You know, I just didn't know that was a thing in Tanzania. That tax is being used to help propagate religion. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, and yeah. Because it's a secular country, which is oh, even yeah. more interesting. Um, but that connection with Iran, I guess, that's that's fascinating. I just didn't know about that. Hmm. It, it just separate. It just separates that community from, I guess, what local... I guess what local ties they would have in Tanzania and it. technically it is illegal to be funding Islamist states in every Western country. So if anybody finds out that you have a wire transfer for no reason to Iran, you would be questioned by authorities. And that's what, that these are a lot of things that people don't put out in public. And until I did it, that's like, obviously after my arrest, I went like you fund Islamist schools. Do you realize that that is illegal and you do it in cash because you can't do wire transfers? People wow. would take a bunch of cash, obviously under that limit of entry. And then you're like, oh, here, I'm just going to make this. Huh. Interesting. Um, How? Uh, well, okay. Wow. Uh, I, I feel this could go into very, very different directions, which I'm going to, we're going to have to keep this to the, to your story. So we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to cut, I'm just going to, I'm just going to cut that right now. Okay, good. Got it. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> I am sure that there are probably about 50 more absolutely fascinating things like that, that we just don't have a clue about that are just cultural and government and money differences and things that, 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 that people have to put up with. Um, wow. You know, I, I have one, I, I guess I have one other question for you, just to, just because you have had a life that has straddled both of these worlds. And I, and I, and I want to take advantage of this time that I have with you to, to, to ask you, um, you know, you are an activist, you do care, you clearly are out there putting yourself out there, you went through this process, and you made it public, and you got through it. And you did avoid you know, the worst of the worst happening to you in terms of assault and, and, and rape and stuff. Thank God you did. Um, where do you, what, what do you think we can accomplish with activism at this point? You're, you know, you're working in this, this, this faithless hijabi organization that you've started um, with other survivors, other ex-Muslim uh, women or men. What, what are you trying to do with that? Where do you want to go with that? What do you see? What kind of changes do you want to see? I guess the one important thing that I found in my line of activism interactions and everything is um, respectful dialogue that I feel mm -hmm. sometimes as activists we lose because we're so motivated to put our purpose out there that we forget to go back a step 
and realize where do those differences come from? There's something that led us to think differently. Um, and I think the most important thing with any form of change will come from respectful dialogue, which I find it very hard with a lot of people because there is either that willful ignorance when you come from a religion, religious background or personally, like I'm sure the other person too would get frustrated when we can't agree on something. But I have learned over time that I sometimes find that there are a lot of Muslim women that do support me and there are Muslim feminists, I'm not gonna say Islamic feminists, there are Muslim feminists fighting their own battles. And, you know, there, there could be a certain cognitive dissonance to say that this is not religious, but coming from my own family who wears the hijab and I disagree with it thoroughly and seeing their beliefs evolve from a more political side to a spiritual side, I think it's important that we acknowledge that that exists. There is this, I don't completely buy into the whole Islamic part and I still am spiritual. So I've seen my family evolve to more going like, being more critical, think, think like be, being more critical about their faith by thinking outside what has been set out for them, but still praying. And, you know, I don't have an issue with that. I can understand why people would pray and why people would believe in God. And even if some of those ideas are ridiculous to me and I have every right to mock them as they would have any right to, every right to mock me not for not having or believing in a God. But I think that while provocation and blasphemy, all of these things are necessary or provocation is necessary to challenge blasphemy laws. Um, we tend to forget to have that dialogue. I, I just think that sometimes a lot of people, when they see me online, they're so happy to like be horrible to me, or I'm sure to anybody else who would be do, doing that instead of like going a step back and going like, have I actually spoken to her? Mm. Like I've had someone who was like full on death threats in London. And then I called him, I just randomly called him on those this on Instagram. He's like, why are you calling me? And I'm like, I wanna to talk to you. He talks to me for like an hour and a half. And he's like, you're actually pretty nice. And I'm like, and he's like, but I don't like your criticism on Islam. And I'm like, but you never asked why. Right. You know, people assume that it's something to do with my background, but it, a lot of times my story is so different from a lot of different people who have had their parents inflicting vigorously that religious ideas and I feel like our activism should go in a way that one we're making we're making positive outcomes of it on a more policy level but also on a more strategic level where we're we have an end goal and that end goal could change every time and it could it's a journey and it, we might never reach the end but have little milestones so I think that that's where I would like to see Faithless Ajabi going. And I would like to challenge that idea of, um, you know, the black and white thinking, because Faithless Ajabi initially started off working with ex-Muslims, but then we also had Muslim women come to us. And I was like, technically, we were both raised very similarly. So you would have the same, I guess, trauma or distaste or disagreements that I would. But I decided to leave the faith and you don't have to be compelled to follow what I did. But it is important that we recognize as women from Muslim background or on our abuse background. And I find increasingly that, you know, there are women from Christian or 
Jewish um, ultra-Orthodox background that we have this modesty and shame and honor culture in common to identify that we could have this differences in like how what we believe in now but there could be so much overlap that we could work together to address instead of isolating each other and I remember that my activism changed a lot where there was a time that I wouldn't appreciate the hijab icons on an app or something and I'm like why are they promoting this and I was like well hang on if I was a child and I used to be a child that wore the hijab I would get excited to see, hey, there's a woman who's wearing a hijab and I can be that woman. And, you know, we, I think if we're trying to remove the modesty um, idea, it wouldn't come with stopping the hijab and like, like, you know, just attacking women for it. We can still be able to discuss about the hijab without bringing individuals in. But I remember that my activism had moved from like, I don't want to see this to like, it is quite empowering. Hmm. And it, it, like for hijabi models, it takes a lot of guts to be out there and do it, right? Because they would get the same death th threats that I would get, except I have chosen not to wear it and they are continuing to wear it. But the same men who would prey on me would prey on them. Right, which and kind of tells you- see so much backlash. Kind of tells you a little bit that maybe it's not so much about the hijab and it's maybe more about just oppressing women. I mean, if I'm being honest, <laughs> as I see it. Yeah, yeah, but I still think there's a difference between a hijabi and a hijab. Well, the women can wear it and it's not much of a choice per se if you're brought up to continuously like wear it and have known it but it, like the hijab is a symbol of many different things and it means many different things to many different people yep. well i find it misogynistic somebody else finds it empowering yep. um and we could thoroughly disagree but one thing we could agree on is that the reason that ever came about is because we were to blame or in other words we are responsible as women um for a, a, a apparent inability to control themselves right. and there is that you know like there are times when I see hijabi models and I'm like oh my god this is so stunning or like I want to wear it once but had it not represented so much control and misogyny it would have meant completely different it would have meant completely different things to different people had it right. not been the war in Iran where women are trying to remove it and get jailed had it not been for like women who were killed because of it, it would mean very many different things to many different people. It could just be a style thing. It could just be like, I can wear it the way I want to. I can wear it and not wear it the next day. Right. Um, but yeah, I think our activism needs to go towards more of a dialogue and um, actionable changes and and advocacy is a big part, but I think if we just keep talking about it, while it's empowering, we need to work towards, and this is a lesson for myself included, to work towards actually making those changes versus only talking about it. Definitely. Well, Zara, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me about all of this and share your experiences and your ideas about this, because I, 
I think they're powerful, and I hope that um, that I hope that you reach a lot of people with with this messaging. Well, thank you, thank you so much for having. I realized we just went on for two hours in the bug. <laughs> we did. Oh, we talked quite a bit. Oh, like yeah. about two hours. Yeah. 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 We got um, a lot so of it was stuff really here, nice. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I will put a link to uh, your organization there so people can check that out. And um, otherwise, I guess I will just say thank you again. And uh, folks out there, if this is something that has sparked your interest or your attention or something that you think you might want to do something about, do check out faithlesshajabi.org. That's faithlesshajabi.org. Did I get that right? That is correct. Great. Good. And we will have that, like I said, in the links there below. So uh, check it out. All right, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.